This evening we begin to look at the hour of Christ's glorification, the passion narrative in the fourth gospel, the chapters John 18 and 19. To describe the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of our Lord as his passion is to aver the root meaning of the term. From the Latin passio, meaning suffering, it forms part of what our Westminster standards call the humiliation of Christ. We are accustomed to the use of derivatives from the Latin passio in our Reformed doctrine of the impassibility of God, namely the doctrine that God cannot suffer. See chapter 2, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Hence, the title, The Passion of Christ in the Fourth Gospel, should not alarm us as if somehow we have become sacerdotal. The passion of Jesus is, in fact, a display of how the impassable second person of the Godhead condescends to suffer through incarnation. I am interested in the structure the literary structure of John's passion narrative. I am interested in the narrative theology of John's passion account. But I am supremely interested in the biblical theology of John's passion narrative, and I am supremely interested in the biblical theology of John's story of Christ's passion, because it is your story, Jesus' story, our story. John's passion narrative is a literary triptych consisting of three panels, much like a Roman three-paneled writing tablet of his day. Your handout of John 18 and 19 arranges the three panels in a simple chiasm. Under the literary pattern of page one of your handout, the arrest, chapters 18, 1 to 12, the trial, chapter 18, verses 13 to 19, 16, and the crucifixion, chapter 19, verse 16 to 42. You will note that the triptych, which thematically is interrelated, is also bound in narrative integrity by an inclusio. Verse 1 of chapter 18, where there was a garden. Verse 41 of chapter 19, where there was a garden. An integral narrative unit is bounded by the literary marker, the inclusio. That unit, in its integrity, is the passion narrative of John's gospel. Between the garden of his arrest and the garden of his burial is the narrative of the passion of our Savior. He went out into the night. He comes back in the night. The darkness which enveloped him when he left Jesus enfolds him as he returns for Jesus. Darkness all around him. Darkness covering him like a shroud, darkness embracing him like a tomb. He carries a light. 
He carries a lantern to stave off the darkness. He carries a torch to find his way to the light of the world, to find his way to this one in whom there is no darkness, this one whom the darkness does not comprehend. Judas Iscariot, surrounded by darkness, comes with his dark legions and their swords, their armor, their tramping footsteps, their macho bravado. Two hundred strong, this dark band. Some commentators suggest a full 600-man Roman cohort. Two hundred, six hundred, what matter? They are armed to the teeth. They will not be outmaneuvered by one man. He shall not escape their dark clutches, their firepower, their display of force and might and potency. This ribbon of light, lanterns flickering like fireflies as they wave in the dark, this ribbon of light clamors and clangs its way up the east slope, the east slope of the Mount of Olives. At the head of this Jewish-Gentile army, dark irony that, when had Jewish and Roman soldiers marched rank on rank for any reason? At the head of the trusted keeper of the purse, the treasurer of the little band, the little band of twelve, the dark lord of the dark band is the money bags. And he has been paid in advance for this piece of work, this dark, dastardly piece of work. Judas Iscariot, friend of Jesus, Judas Iscariot, companion of Jesus, Judas Iscariot, treasurer of Jesus' new Israel, Judas Iscariot hands his friend, his companion, his benefactor, hands him over to the darkness, the hour of darkness, and the power thereof. Judas hands Jesus over to darkness, even deadly darkness, and Jesus does not resist him. Why so passive, Jesus, hearing the clamor of sword and armor, watching the ribbon of light snaking its way through the night? Run, Jesus. Flee, Jesus. Pass through the midst as you did when leaving the temple, chapter 8, verse 59. Hide yourself as you did on Palm Sunday, chapter 12, verse 36. Withdraw as you did when you fed the 5,000, chapter 6, verse 15. But Jesus stays. Jesus remains. Jesus abides while the darkness envelops him. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Chapter 12, verse 23. The hour of Jesus has arrived with the arrival of Judas and his army. For this hour, Jesus was born. To this hour, Jesus was destined, yea, predestined from before the foundation of the world. No passive Jesus here in John 18. No, Jesus is fully, completely, omnipotently sovereign here. 
And if Jew and Gentile unite against him, he submits that Jew and Gentile may be united in and through him. Jesus does not run from arrest, shameful, dishonorable, criminal arrest. Jesus does not run, for this shame is his glory. This dishonor is his honor. This status as criminal is his status as guiltless. Jesus comes to this garden voluntarily. Jesus remains in this garden voluntarily. Jesus faces his captors voluntarily. Jesus is bound by his antagonists voluntarily. Willingly he is bound. Willingly he is captured. Willingly he is sought and found. Willingly he stands and is arrested. How scandalous this weakness, this impotence, this wimpishness. How shameful this Jesus who meekly submits, weakly surrenders, passively raises no sword or weapon in self-defense. Such a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is too much, too fickle, too wimpy. Our heroes are iron men. Top guns, macho dudes, power brokers, passive Jesus, no way. But this sphere of discourse here in John 18, this sphere of discourse is very different from ours. This world of Jesus here in John 18, this world of Jesus is very different from ours. The arena in which Jesus operates is different, very different from ours. This world of Jesus has no swords and weapons. This world of Jesus has no traitorous hypocrites. This world of Jesus has no power players. This world of Jesus has no darkness. When you come to Jesus' world, you come to a very different arena. When you come to Jesus' world, you come to a place where someone other than yourself is central. The soldiers clamor and march into that garden with all their firepower. They are the center of their world. Judas leads the soldiers into that garden. Judas is, at last, the center of his world. The microcosm of this garden on the Mount of Olives is a microcosm of two worlds. The world of self, self-centeredness, self-absorption, self-importance, self-esteem. And the world of Christ-centeredness, absorption in and with Christ, importance and esteem of Christ alone. The issue for John, author of these 12 verses in chapter 18, 1 to 12, the supreme issue is the world in which Jesus is central. Jesus is the focal point. Jesus is preeminent. In this world, in John's world, in Jesus' world, 
You must change your way of thinking. You have to get yourself, your omnipotent self, out of the spotlight. You must stand in the light of another world. Your own world is too dark. You must stand in the world of glory, the glory world of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the other world, the doxological cosmos, that other world has been eternally inhabited by the only begotten Son of the Father. No shadows, no darkness, no selfishness in Him. Theologically, Jesus is at the center of this arrest scene in John 18. But the inspired apostle crafts his narrative of the arrest of Jesus so that from the literary point of view, Jesus is also the center of the story. John 18, 1-12 is a carefully constructed record of the events. The hand of a literary artist weaves this history into a compelling Christocentric, soteriological, eschatological chiasm. At the center of the chiasm, the central figure in the narrative, the central figure in the drama, the central figure in the gospel, the central figure in redemptive history. As you review these 12 verses, you will detect some parallels, actually some duplications, John has a penchant for doubling things. It reinforces his point. You will notice parallel duplication in verses 4 to 6 and verses 7 to 8. Jesus asks, whom do you seek? Verse 4 and verse 7. The soldiers, officers, and Judas reply, Jesus the Nazarene. Verse 5 and verse 7. Jesus then identifies himself, I am he, or at least that is how most English versions translate Christ's reply in verses 8, 5, and 8. But the phrase in the original Greek is simply, I am. And that identification is a ringing echo of the I am identifications Jesus has made throughout this gospel. I am the bread of life, chapter 6. I am the light of the world, chapter 8. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. Jesus' use of the I am name, the so-called theophonic name of God, is a claim of identity with God. The Jews who heard these statements were not slow to get the point. Jesus was claiming equality with God by equally claiming God's I am name. In case we have missed that point in our present narrative, chapter 18, John tells us what happened when Jesus first identified himself as the I am in this garden, verse 6. I am, and they all fall down. Two words and all are prostrate. Here is a picture of the creature before the I am. The creature lies at the feet 
of the I am. I am that I am, and the creatures fall to the ground. The soldiers fall. The officers fall. Judas falls. The hostile creatures fall at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because he is the powerful one. He is the all-powerful one. He is the omnipotent one who, in uttering the name, this God name, this almighty name, in uttering this name, he identifies himself as no creature. In uttering this name, Jesus identifies himself as God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. For what reason, then, is Jesus arrested? Because he makes himself equal with God. I am. For what reason do armed soldiers and officers surround Jesus? Because he makes himself to be the singularly unique Son of God. I am. For what reason are weapons brandished in a display of force and might? Because being a man, he makes himself out to be God. I am. And prostrate at the feet of I am fall his accusers, his attackers, his detractors, his enemies, those who do not believe the I am claims of Jesus of Nazareth. The center of the chiasm here in John 18 is verse 6, where the I am appears sandwiched between the duplicate parallel exchanges between Jesus and the arresting mob. That central I am in verse 6 is accompanied by a description of the power of the I am. Sovereign power is exercised in the breath and words of Jesus. Sovereign almighty power is exercised in the breath and words of Jesus. Sovereign omnipotent power is put forth in verse 6 because Jesus' identity, Jesus' name, Jesus' being is the being, the name, the identity of I am. Who is outnumbered in this garden scene? Jesus? By no means. Jesus' mere word is power sufficient to drive his opponents to their knees, to put his enemies on the ground. This display of omnipotence with the self-identification, I am, is sufficient proof that Jesus is God. God incarnate, God the Son, very God of very God, I am that I am. At the center of Jesus' arrest is a display of Jesus' deity, his claim to be, I am. I have written these things, says John so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name, the I Am name, the name of God the Son. But if Jesus is central to this narrative, did you notice who is peripheral? 
standing off to the side in this account. Do you see them? John singles them out from the crowd of soldiers, the swarm of officers. Do you see them? These peripheral characters in this narrative, Judas is standing with the crowd, verse 5. Judas identifies with the opponents, the adversaries, the enemies of Jesus. Judas takes his stand against Jesus and betrays him. And his name, the name of Judas, his name becomes identified forevermore with treachery and duplicity and perfidy. Even being thrown down at the feet of Jesus does not sober him, does not deter him. Even his own impotence before I am does not give him pause. It is as if he willed to be damned regardless. It is as if he will not, no, he will not embrace Jesus no matter what. So great is his self-centeredness, his self-absorption, his self-pity. No, he will never lean on Jesus' breast. He will never kiss the Son of God in love. He will never bow at the feet of Jesus and plead, Wash me and I shall be clean. No, Judas will not. In spite of omnipotent sovereignty displayed, in spite of clear manifestations of divine identity and power, Judas will not come to Jesus as any other than the enemy of Jesus. That there is another standing off-center stage in this narrative. Do you see him peripheral yet almost parallel to Judas? Do you see Peter off to the side, now brandishing his sword in a furious slash of vengeance? Do you see Peter almost like Judas, sword in hand, ready to strike down the enemy? Peter standing off to the side of Jesus, but almost behaving like his mirror image, Judas. Oh yes, Peter too will betray Jesus, betray Jesus by denying him. Not once, not twice, but three times. Peter will betray his identification with Jesus I am not. Not I am, but I am not. Oh, the irony of John's literary style. Jesus affirms, I am the one whom you seek. Peter says, I am not. I am not to be identified with him. Jesus says, I am twice. Peter says, I am not twice. The shadow of darkness, which shrouds Judas, reaches out to enfold Peter. No question about the power of darkness over Judas, but Peter also seems to be overpowered by what possesses Judas. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. 
And Peter comes out of the dark shadow, which swallows up Judas. In John chapter 21, three times Jesus takes the darkness completely away from Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I do. I do love you, Lord. Indeed, I love you out of my grief, my foolish pride, my cowardice, my unbelief. Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, I know you love me because, Peter, I first loved you. And I would not allow the darkness to swallow you up. I would not let Judas' hatred possess your soul. Peter, I know you love me and I have work for you to do. Feed my sheep. Nurture my lambs. Shepherd my flock. And now you understand a little better why Peter stands on the periphery of this story over against Judas. What appears to draw him into the circle of Judas by parallel duplication is in fact a contrast of foolish bravado and cowardice, but a contrast John establishes in chapter 18 so as to foreshadow the under-shepherd motif in chapter 21. Chapter 18 opens with the crossing of the Kidron, winter torrent Kidron, as the name suggests, connoting a chill atmosphere to the ensuing scene, a cold, calculated, traitorous atmosphere is signaled with the crossing of the Kidron. But it is the significance of the Kidron in the history of redemption which intrigues us even more. Imagine the scene out of Jerusalem, eastward, across the brook Kidron, up to the Mount of Olives, and all because one close to him had turned against him. Out of the holy city towards the east bank, over the brook, climbing the mount, back to the city, face toward exile, each movement provoked by a familiar companion. David, king in Israel, had trod this path before. Driven from his capital eastward, across the Kidron, up the Mount of Olives, into exile, because of Absalom. Absalom... Absalom, treacherous, traitorous, murderous, Absalom. He who ate David's bread lifted up his heel against him. His very own familiar companion, his very own flesh and blood, with swords and soldiers rushing to seize the king, driving the king to the east, to exile, to banishment, to disenthronement. Second Samuel fifteen twenty three is the protological crossing of the Kidron. John eighteen one 
is the eschatological crossing of the Kidron. Absalom's rebellion is the monarchical eruption of the Antichrist, an usurper king who dispossesses the rightful king so that he may rule in lust and immorality, openly raping the concubines of his father. Absalom is a virtual embodiment of the evil one, the evil one who hates, who despises, who is wholly contemptuous of the Lord's anointed. If Jesus retraces the steps of the protological David, it is to reveal the fact that he is the eschatological David. Here is a king betrayed by his bosom friend, treacherously driven from the city he has conquered on a donkey. Here is a king who goes out of Jerusalem, who crosses over the Kidron, who climbs the Mount of Olives, who incarnates the role of one exiled, even unto the eschatological exile from the land of the living, even unto death itself. Here is a second David, a new David, a better David, an eschatological David, content with exile and death and humiliation and shame and dishonor. We are on the brink of redemptive historical recapitulation in John 18, verse 1, because we are on the brink of joining the one who crosses over the river eastward. We are on the brink of identification with a kingdom which no Davidic monarchy can match. We are in the presence of a king whom David but faintly, feebly resembles. John 18.1, and the dawn of the age of the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, I am, I am. But we must return to the stark irony of this story. The innocent and guiltless son of the father under arrest. The spotless son of man bound over for trial. The righteous son of God to be nailed to a cross. Am I not the guilty one who deserves such shame? Are you and I not the unrighteous ones who deserve this humiliation? Are we not the sinful criminals who have merited this judicial verdict? Guilty, I am, not he. Unrighteous, I am, not he. Worthy of death, I am, not he. Then why? Why him? Why is he regarded as guilty? Why is he treated as unrighteous? Why is he judged worthy of death? Why? Because he is the only one in the story 
who is able to take us with him and leave the guilt, the unrighteousness, the shame, the death behind. Jesus is able to take your story and make it his own. Jesus, the Nazarene, the I Am. I am able to take your guilt, says Jesus, and nail it to death, bury it in the grave. Jesus, the Nazarene, the I Am. I am able to take your shame, your unrighteousness, and crucify it once and for all, to close it away in a tomb never to be seen again. Jesus, the Nazarene, the I Am. I am able to take your death to death, to be the death of death, leaving it behind. Jesus, the Nazarene, the omnipotent I Am, is powerful enough to take your guilt, your shame, your sin, your death, to take it all upon himself and crucify it, bury it, close it away forevermore. Jesus goes to this garden in John 18 and submits to arrest, to capture, to trial, to death, to burial in a tomb. Because Jesus' love for his sons and daughters is so great that he is willing to unite their guilt to himself, to join their unrighteousness to himself, to take their cursed death on himself. Jesus, for his great love for his children, is willing to stand in their place, to stand in their place so that grace upon grace they may stand in his place. They may stand acquitted, not guilty, righteous, not unrighteous, justified, not condemned. This arrest narrative in John 18 is no portrait of a hapless, impotent Jesus. This arrest scene is Jesus offering himself to your story, your history, your life of sin and shame and guilt and death. Jesus is joining his life to your story so that your story may be united with his life. And his story, his story does not end in this garden in John 18. No, his story does not end in arrest, capture, trial, execution, tomb. No, the story of Jesus the Nazarene ends in another garden, a different garden, a garden of life, 
resurrection life. A garden in which his risen body proclaims, I tell you there is no death, for I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever believes in me shall live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here is the end of the story begun in John 18. Not shame, resurrection glory, not dishonor, wonderful resurrection honor, not death, resurrection life, eternal life. Jesus' story ends not with the garden of his arrest and shame, but Jesus' story ends with the garden of his resurrection and exaltation. And the end of his story, it is your story. Jesus joined his life to your shame in John 18, that he might join your life to his glory in John 20. The story of Judas... The story of Judas ends, ends with chapter 18. The story of Peter continues. The story of Peter continues with chapter 20 and 21. For the story of Peter is part of the ongoing story. The ongoing story of a disciple the story of a disciple who loves his risen Lord. Now I would like to share with you the manner in which Ludwig von Beethoven gives us a feel for this arrest scene in his oratorio, Christ on the Mount of Olives. In fact, Beethoven gives us a musical, hair-raising rendition of the frenzy of this incident. Your handout on the second page contains the German text of what you are about to hear with a parallel English translation. If you pay attention, you will notice the antiphonal exchanges between the soldiers, Kriegsknechte, and the disciples, die Jünger. That antiphony becomes so raucous that each group seeks to cancel out the other. You will hear... The words of the German text, the soldiers beginning, Here ist er, that is, here is he, der Verbante, the outlaw, der Sieg in Volke Kühn, der Judenkönig Nanta, the one who dares to name himself the king of the Jews among the people, Er greift und bindet in. Er greift und bindet in. Seize and bind him. Was soll der Larm bedeuten? 
What does the noise mean, the disciples say? Est ist um uns gesehen, that is happening near to us. Um ringt von rauhen Kriegern, surrounded by rough soldiers. Wie wird est uns ergehen? How shall we escape? Erbarmen, ach, erbarmen. Erbarmen, ach, erbarmen. Have mercy, oh, have mercy. Beethoven's arrest scene. About a minute back, Tony.
Jesus is transported by the soldiers to Annas. Some have suggested that verses 12 to 14 or 13 to 14 of chapter 18 are a typical Johannine bridge unit, a transitioning device indicative of a change of scene. It is correct, of course, that we have a change of scene from the garden of Christ's arrest to the quarters of Annas. But the structure of 1813 to 27 is more sophisticated than that, for it presents a change frame device. In fact, the first of a number of change frame devices in John's Passion narrative. A change frame device in which the camera moves from the inside to the outside, from the inside of Annas's quarters to the courtyard outside the door to those quarters. And the narrative drama of this unit, 1813 to 27, is played out by means of what occurs in those two venues. Your handout, page four. The open affirmation by Christ of his teaching on the inside, verses 19 to 23, the open denial by Peter of his Lord on the outside, verses 15 to 18 and verses 25 to 27. Christ, betrayed by one of his disciples in the arrest scene, identifies himself as I am, verses 5 and 7. Peter, denying his Lord in the initial interrogation scene, identifies himself as I am not, verses 17 and 25. I am, I am not. The antagonist of the arrest scene, Judas Iscariot, remains an an antagonist. But the alleged protagonist of the arrest scene, Simon Peter, becomes an imitator of Judas in scene two. Denial is its own ironic form of betrayal. Peter wishes no identification with I am, I am not, and a cock crowed. More than the tragedy of Peter here, we note the conjunction of another disciple in verses 15 and 16. Another disciple conjoined with a denier. We shall meet these two once more, Peter and the other disciple. We shall meet them on the other side of the cross and resurrection in John chapter 21. And on the other side of Christ's passion, Peter and John will join Jesus And together they will confess Jesus as their Lord, their Lord whom they love because he first loved them. The foreshadowing of characters in this scene, Peter, John, Jesus, will be replayed in that climactic 21st chapter. And those who follow the arrested Jesus, chapter 18, verse 15, will follow the risen Jesus, chapter 21, 19, 20, and 22.
They will follow the risen Jesus even to death and life everlasting. We change scenes again in verse 28 from the high priest's quarters to the praetorium, the Roman praetorium of the provincial governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And the change frame device suggested in verses 12 to 27 becomes dominant in 1828 through 1916. Notice the anticipation of this motif in verse 28. They themselves, that is the Jews, did not enter into the praetorium. The drama between Pilate, the Jews, and Jesus is going to switch inside and outside inside and outside of the praetorium. And so the camera will track, will track the movement from the outside to the inside, back and forth in seven separate scenes. The trial of Jesus before Pilate is a cat-and-mouse game, moving from outside the praetorium to inside the praetorium. The structure of this seven-scene narrative was laid down by Raymond Brown in his famous Anchor Bible Commentary on the Gospel, your handout, page 3. Brown analyzed the descending and ascending parabola as merging into the scourging, 19.1-3, and emerging into the crucifixion proper, 1917-42. He further demonstrated the symmetry of the scenes Namely, the outside scene one shares similarities with the outside scene seven. The outside scene two shares similarities with the inside scene six. Rather, the inside scene two shares similarities with the inside scene six. And the outside scene three shares similarities with the outside scene five. That leaves scene four as the centerpiece in this marvelously crafted and divinely inspired account of our Lord's trial before Pilate. Please note that in addition to the unifying change frame outside-inside pattern, 1828 to 1916 contains two literary inclusios which mark it as a narrative unit. Scenes 1 and 7 contain inclusive boundary markers. Passover, verse 28 of chapter 18, scene 1. Passover again, verse 14 of chapter 19, scene 7. Handed over, verse 30 of chapter 18, scene 1. Handed over, verse 16 of chapter 19, scene 7. The feast of Passover bounds the trial of Jesus before Pilate. Here is the eschatological Passover lamb of God, led to the slaughter by those who refuse to defile themselves with pagan environs, though their hands are defiled with innocent blood. 
or are all our emotions left outside this narrative? Our emotions of sympathy, tragedy, empathy, pity, atrocity. Our emotions draw us to the inside. They draw us to the inside in the drama of Christ, our Passover. Pilate begins his part in this drama with a question, verse 29. The omnipresent interrogative in John's passion narrative. Pilate succeeds in stirring the peak of his Jewish audience. They, in turn, annoyingly, irritably, remind his eminence that the malefactors, King James for evildoers, malefactors are presumed guilty when handed over to Rome's tribunal. No Western democratic values in this Middle Eastern venue. Innocent until proven guilty, nonsense. Guilty until proven innocent. Already, the public humiliation and shame of Jesus is being universalized. Jesus is regarded as malefactor by Jew and Gentile alike. The world, the world inside and outside Palestine, accuses the only begotten Son of the Father. All the world, regards Jesus as a malefactor, the world God so loved that he sent his son, his lamb, to save. Jesus is being shamed with this open and public presumption of guilt. His humiliation includes the interrogation and declaration of guilt and shame. Pilate bristles, verse 31, at the Jewish smart mouth response. Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. It is a trump, a temporary trump of Jewish arrogance. Notice their admission in reply. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Indeed, Pilate knew that. His rejoinder in verse 31 is a candid reminder of who has power and who does not. Who has power and who does not? How the world loves to play that game. How like the world when the church and the officers of the church play that game too. This cat and mouse game, a power trip of manipulator and manipulee, Pilate. Pontius Pilate is one up on the outsiders as he moves back inside. Please note the Johannine ironies subtly dramatized in this opening Roman trial scene. The cultically scrupulous Jews will not enter Gentile space to defile themselves, but they are unconcerned with the moral defilement that covers those murdering innocent blood. Orthodoxy often makes people blind, blind to their own power-based moral tyranny and defilement. When human beings are oppressed, 
orthodoxy has become diabolic abuse and intimidation. It is the spirit of Antichrist, howsoever orthodox it protests itself to be. Additional ironies in this scene. The one who judges not, chapter 3, verse 17, is judged. The one who accuses not, chapter 5, verse 45, is accused. The one who is guiltless is presumed guilty. The one who is life, chapter 11, verse 25, is handed over to death. The one who is God, chapter 1, verse 1, is regarded as a mere man. Must it not be so? Incarnational irony, participative irony, identificational irony. The Son of God, who is God and no man, becomes man. Incarnational, nay, soteriological irony. The eschatological life, who is life itself, becomes death. Incarnational, nay, soteriological death. The one who is without guilt and blame becomes the guilty and blameworthy. Incarnational, nay, soteriological guilt and blame. The one who comes not for judgment becomes judged. Incarnational, nay, soteriological judgment. You have condemned and put to death the righteous, but he doth not resist you. James 5, verse 6. Who was the guilty who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. Verse 33, and a scene shift. Pilate goes back inside the praetorium to interrogate Jesus. His interrogation begins and ends with questions, verse 33 and verse 38a. In fact, every statement of Pilate in this second trial scene is a question. Once more, the omnipresent interrogative in John's Passion narrative. But it is the questioner who is questioned, the interrogator who is interrogated. Jesus creates a role reversal in verse 34. His bearing here is superb, superb and sublime. The paragon of Roman authority exercises his role as prosecutor, you are the king of the Jews. The defendant cross-examines the prosecution with a question. Are you saying this on your own initiative? The Roman governor who has trumped the Jews on the outside is stumped by Jesus on the inside. This peasant answers my question, my question, with a question. Pilate supplanted Pilate stymied 
by Jesus. Pilate now becomes angry. Angry and abusive. It is so often so. Tragically, so often so. Disagree, think differently, and you become the subject of verbal abuse. Jesus has done to Pilate what he had done to the Jews in verses 20 to 23. He turns the tables on this Gentile, even as the Gentile turned the tables on his Jewish antagonists. Irritated, put on the defensive Pilate, tries to play Jesus' game, trying to turn the tables on the peasant upstart interrogatee Pilate tries to resume his role as interrogator. Am I a Jew? Verse 35. Mockery. Contemptuous mockery. Your own nation, not my nation, your own nation has handed you over. They regard you as a malefactor. What have you done? Now, Pilate may appear disingenuous at this point. After all, he has been told by the Jews that they regard Jesus as an evildoer. Verse 30. My kingdom is not of this world. Verse 36. Jesus' response may appear disingenuous. But in fact, Jesus is precisely addressing Pilate's question. What have I done, says Jesus? I have brought a kingdom not of this world, not from here, not from below. What have I done? I have brought a kingdom from above, from heaven, from the realm of the eschaton, not a kingdom of evildoers with swords and weapons and powers from here, from your realm, Pilate, but a kingdom of benefactors, not malefactors, a swordless, weaponless kingdom. Pilate, my kingdom is the intersection of two worlds, this realm, your realm, and my realm, the realm of from here, your realm, and my realm, the realm of not from here. What have I done? I have brought an otherworldly kingdom, an eschatological kingdom, a kingdom of a very different realm. And if the kingdom I have brought were like your kingdom, Pilate, I would be like you, maneuvering, countering, bullying, throwing a royal hissy fit so that I could display my power freak personality. Or if I were like the Jews, I would be contriving to remove every religious personality who threatens my established perks, my entrenched prejudices, my earthly agenda. Pilate, my kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is a kingdom of heavenly liberty, freedom, acceptance, tolerance, love, Kindness, servanthood, sacrifice. Pilate, my kingdom is like me. 
from above, from my Father, from eternity, from heaven. So you are a king? You say that I am a king. Jesus has turned the tables on Pilate again. The accuser is accused. The prosecutor is prosecuted. Yes, Pilate, you say that I am a king, and your witness is true. Truth, out of Pilate's own mouth. Truth, Pilate is what I am about. Truth from above, from heaven, from the eschatological realm of my eschatological kingdom. What is truth? Pilate's ultimate question here is not the philosopher's query. Pilate's final question in this scene is not the seeker's inquiry. Pilate's question is a scoffing, sneering contempt for this disheveled peasant who stands before him. Before the truth teller, in front of the truth incarnate, Pontius Pilate sneers, scoffs, ridicules. Pilate faces, Pilate hears the self-witness, the self-testimony of I am, of God the Son, of the King of Heaven, of the way, the truth, the life. The truth incarnate stands before you, Pilate. By him alone you come to that other realm that heavenly realm. By him alone you come to the Father in heaven. No one, not you, not anyone comes to the Father but by this Jesus. This one who stands before you at this very moment claiming sole power to deliver you from this world to the world to come, to release you from error and bring you to the truth. Here is Jesus standing before Pilate, before each of you, standing in all his lowliness, his humiliation, all his marvelous glory, standing before you now at the intersection of heaven and earth, standing at the interface of the eschatological and the temporal, inviting you to join him, to join him in sneers and scoffing and ridicule to join him in mockery and injustice, to join him in death. Death to yourself. Death to your stubbornness. Death to your cruel heartlessness. Death to your persecution of him and those whom you persecute for righteousness' sake. Death to your arrogance, your smugness, your smart mouth smugness. Death to all that power you love in this world. Death to it all, so that with him you may live. Yes, 
with Jesus, you may live in his kingdom, his world, his realm, his other than here arena, so that you may live with and love Jesus, the truth, forever. We'll take our break and then we'll continue with chapter 18, verse 38b.